So now, if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Matthew chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2. Those are the two verses we'll be looking at today as we're going through our message, The Scandalous Genealogy of Jesus. Now, uh, a lot of you guys will be going out and doing some traveling this week. A lot of you, well, I guess not a lot of you, but a lot of people have already left and they're already doing that. And you're going to brave snowy roads. You're going to brave delayed flights and sit in O'Hare Airport for days on end, it seems like. When you get to the place you're going to, there will be cats and dogs that will make your allergies go berserk. The cats will attack your toes when you're sleeping on a pull-out couch with no lumbar support. You will eat food that you don't really like. Turkeys will be too dry. People will be debating politics at the dinner table. But why do you go through all of this every year? Because it's your family. Because you love them. Because there's a bond that you have with your family that keeps you going back. There's a connectivity between you guys. And one of the things I've figured out, we have a lot of adopted kids in my family. I think that the adopted kids outnumber the biological kids now. Genes have nothing to do with what your family is. You know, what makes you a family isn't the genes that you have inside of you. What makes you family is the bond that you have. And what forms that bond is common experiences that you go through. There's shared experiences that members of a family go through, and it develops that love, and it develops a bond in them. And for all of us, that started, our, our um, love and acceptance into a family started before we were ever born. I didn't understand this until I had my own kids, but, you know, when we found out that we were pregnant, it was like, oh, this is awesome. And inside my heart, it was like the Grinch when his heart grew just a little bit. That happened to me. And I had this love for this person I'd never met before. They were, you know, smaller than a pea. I didn't know anything about them, but I already loved this child. There was already a bond that was forming. And for Anna, it was even stronger because she carried the baby for nine months, so she was very aware going through experiences. I remember when she started getting morning sickness, that was an experience that caused a bond, like, look what you're doing to me, but I still choose to love you. And then it was, uh, you got to feel it flutter a little bit, and you're like, oh my goodness, that's my little boy, he's fluttering. You got to see the, the pictures of them, and they don't look like much, but you, that's the most beautiful baby I've ever seen in my whole life. And then... The day comes when the child is born. And that first time that you see that baby, the first time that you hold him, it's a shared experience. And now you're bonded to this child. You have a love for this child that continues to grow. And then it continues to go from there. You know, feeding the baby, it's a bonding experience. When that little baby sits on your lap, when they begin to say their first words and learn to laugh and become ticklish, all these things are experiences that you're sharing together that are causing a bond to continue to develop and a love to continue to be strengthened. And then it moves on to things like family vacations. You get older. And family vacations are experiences that are good and experiences that are bad. But they continue to form a bond because you're all going through this together. And what happens is not only do you begin to develop the bonds and the love for your family, but the more you go through, the more experiences that you have together, the more you begin to receive an identity from your family. We were goat people. I, this is one of the things that my, my sisters and I, we all kind of understand this because our parents, for a lot of occasions, we went to goat shows. And my parents are here. I was going to tell a lot more stories, but now they're sitting right here. So this is the cleaned up, censored version. But they would take us to goat shows, and there were other goat people there. And you don't know many goat people because there aren't many of them, but they're a different breed. They're goat people. That's all I can say about that. And they know how to look at a goat and to judge it by its quality and its composition. I don't understand anything about goats, but 
they, that's what we were. We were goat people. So we had this identity of like, let's keep this secret. Let's not let a lot of our friends know. When we got really close to someone, then we could invite them to the goat show with us for the weekend so they could experience that. Because this is something that you need to experience. I can't describe it for you. But that became a part of our identity. We as a family were goat people. And then there were other things that you continue to receive because the identity that you receive from your family isn't just from the experiences that you have together, but there's an identity that you receive from the people that have come before you. From your relatives. Your parents have more influence and more sway on you than anybody else. They shape you. They mold you. The way that they raise you, the values that they instill in you, that's all a part of a family identity they're passing into you that you didn't have a choice in. And then you look at your grandparents, because your, your parents were shaped by your grandparents, and so on and so on. So you go back down the line, and you begin to see identity issues that have been passed on from generation to generation to generation. And there's some really good things in my family. Like, every single person in my family, they're all serving the Lord. They love him. Uh, that's, uh, the whole life has always viewed ourselves as we're in ministry. No matter what it is that we do, we're in ministry. We serve the Lord. We go to church every Sunday. We serve at church. We have been passionate about worship and prayer, about reading the Bible. Those are all things that I was born into. It wasn't my choice, but because my great-grandparents and my grandparents and then my parents had this identity, they passed it on to me. And there are some things that aren't so great about my family identity. And once again, my parents had to be here for this. <laughs> you know, my grandma... I don't know what my great-grandma was like, but my grandma was just an incredible, incredible woman. She was a servant among servants, but she was a warrior. She was someone that never felt like she was good enough. She could never just sit down and enjoy life and relax because she was always trying to do something to continue to add value and to continue to try to serve other people. She couldn't just sit down and receive anything. And that's something my mom had, she recognized in life, and she said, I don't want to be like that. There's a lot of great things about my grandma, but this one thing, I don't want that to be my identity. But it's something that she struggles with, and it's something that, you know, we struggle with too, because we've just seen that modeled, and we're praying that one day that's completely broken in our family. But there's an identity good, and an identity that's bad, that's been passed on to every single one of us. Our families, we're together. We, we love each other. We fight with each other. We go through the good times, the bad times, through the thick and thin. We're all together. We're all sharing these experiences, and we all have an identity that's been passed down from generation to generation. And we're all shaped by those who have come before us. We make our own decisions in our life, but there are also decisions that others have made before us that shape us. And the identity that you have is something that once you become aware of it, you'll either embrace it and go with it, or you'll start to fight it. And a lot of you guys, there are things that you recognize in your family that have been passed down to you that aren't things that you're proud of. There's things about your parents or your siblings that drive you nuts because they're the things you don't like about yourself. Have you ever noticed that? But as we continue to work through these, we continue to understand that identity. And that's something that I really want us to understand this morning before we go any farther, is that there is an identity that every single one of us has. It's been passed down to us. Now, this Christmas, what we do is we celebrate that God came to earth, that he took on human flesh, that he came as a baby, and that baby was born into a family. Which means that Jesus had an identity that he was born into. And Matthew, when he starts out his gospel, the beginning of it is he starts out by listing the genealogy of Jesus. 
I know a lot of you guys aren't big on the genealogies. When I am reading my Bible, a lot of times I get to the genealogies and I really do some skimming there. When I read the numbers of camels that they captured, I skim over that. When I read who begat who, I skim over that. It's not, you don't notice a lot of bumper stickers or you know, magnets on the fridge that talk about like, Gad begot bad. You don't see athletes you know, have eye paint with like numbers 13, 12 painted on there. You don't see them score and then they're like, hmm, David was the father of Solomon. Those aren't the things that you focus on. But Matthew chooses to focus on this at the very beginning of the story of who Jesus is. Because Jesus' genealogy reveals to us what that family identity is that he had. Now, God's very intentional. He doesn't do things without reason behind it. And he had a reason that he chose to have Jesus come into the family that he came into. And in Matthew chapter 1, it says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we're just going to read just a few of the begats. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amindabad, and Amindabad the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And when we read these, we can't pronounce their names. At least I can't. I actually practiced saying these and I just totally blew it. But they're names that we don't know. They're names we don't recognize. We're 2,000 years removed from when this was written. Culturally, we're Westerners. We don't read this and get a lot out of it. But Matthew writes this, and this is the way that he begins it, because he's writing to an audience. And every single person that he's writing this to, when they read this, they understand exactly who it is that he's talking about. They know all the stories behind all of these names that we can't pronounce, and the names that we don't know. And we're just going to go through a few of these real quick. That first one we'll start out with is Tamar. Now Tamar, if you guys have ever read about her, on top of having an unfortunate name, uh, she, sorry any Tamars that are here, I should have thought about that. It's a lovely name. <laughs> so Tamar, she gets married as a young woman. Most people in this time would get married about the age of 15. Uh, she wasn't Jewish, she was a foreigner. She marries one of Judah's sons. And it says this about Judah's son, that he was a wicked man. Now this is Old Testament, so what do you think is going to happen to her wicked husband? He gets killed. And so now she's left as a widow. And as a widow, you don't have any way to provide for yourself. There's no one that's going to protect you. You are the most vulnerable segment of society as a widow. So to find a way to provide for widows, culturally they came up with a tradition where if you, um, if you passed away as the husband, then to make sure that your wife was taken care of, your next brother would marry her. That way she's provided for, she's cared for, she has a home, she can still have an heir. And that son that she would have would actually be yours. Even though it was your brother's child, legally it would be your heir and all of your possessions and your estate would pass on to him. So your name would continue to preserve, which was very important to them. So she marries the next, the next brother. She's still a teenager and uh, she marries another guy after her wicked husband has died and she's gone through the heartbreak of that. And this next guy, it says he's a wicked man too. She's, she's got a string of losers going here. 
And this guy wants to, to take pleasure with her but not give her a child. He's abusing her. Completely abusing her. A wicked man. And that guy gets killed too. And so now, she's had two husbands that have passed away. And Judah starts to think, I've only got one more son left, and this is a black widow bride. He doesn't recognize maybe I'm a terrible parent that raises really bad kids. He says, it's got to be this Tamar. She's the trouble, so I'm not going to give my last son to her. So he lies to her, and he says, what I want to do is I want to let my boy grow up. I want him to start his career, go to school, see the world, all that kind of stuff. And then after a while, then we'll have you marry him. But he has no intention of doing that. After a few years of living by herself, waiting for her to be able to marry this other guy, she figures out this is never going to happen. That Judah's been lying to her. That he's abusing her. That he's not fulfilling his obligation to her. And so she decides, what I'm going to do is I'm going to dress up as a woman of the night, and I'm going to go out to the spot where I know Judah goes to pick up women. And she does it. She puts a veil on her face, she disguises herself, and sure enough, Judah comes there, picks her up, and then she ends up getting pregnant with his child. I mean, this is messed up. I'm not, I mean, if you guys are like, that's offensive, don't share that on Christmas. It's like, well, this is the Christmas story, really. This is the genealogy of Jesus. This is Jesus' messed up family. And so she goes back, she's pregnant, and then the servants in Judah's household find out that she's pregnant, and they start flipping out, and they tell Judah. And Judah says, that sexually immoral woman, bring her before me so that we can burn her to death. He's calling her out for being immoral. And so they go to get her to bring her to have her killed, and she says, oh yeah, by the way, uh, the baby's daddy, this is his signet and his ring and his wallet, basically. And it's Judah's. She took those from him. So they take that back to Judah. He sees that it's his child, and he says, you know what? She's more righteous than I am. And he spares her life. She has twin boys. And these twin boys, that are a result of just a completely messed up dynamic, become great, great, great granddaddies of Jesus. Now the next person that it lists is Rahab. Rahab is known for being the prostitute that lied. It's like two great things there. She was in Jericho. She basically ran the red light district, most scholars think. She was an immoral woman. She wasn't the kind of person that you would be proud of and put a picture up on your wall of her. So that's my great, great, great grandmother. She was a prostitute. We, we just love her. <laughs> but that's who she was. That's what she did. That's a part of the family identity of Jesus. Now the next person that a list that we're going to talk about is uh, Ruth. She was a Moabite. What that meant is that she was someone who was a foreigner. She wasn't Jewish, but she traced her identity back to Lot. And most of that's like a Moabite, who cares? But for the Jews that hear a Moabite, that's like, that's the most disgusting, vile people you can imagine. Because what happened is after Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, Lot escaped from there with his two daughters, and he ended up conceiving a child with his daughters. So it was a product of incest. Their entire family branch was incestuous. They were despised by the Jews. But this is the person that gets included into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we look at Bathsheba. You notice it says that, uh, it didn't say the wife of David, it says David's son Solomon by Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Uh, Uriah was her husband, but he has nothing to do with this genealogy. As David was in a rebellious state in his life, and he's hanging out on top of the rooftops one night, and he looks out, and he sees her taking a bath, and he sends for her and basically rapes her. A lot of people are like, well, she was trying to, you know, entrapment. She was trying to get pregnant. She was a gold digger or whatever. No, 
That was what's happening. He's the king. He sends for you. He can take your life. So David, this man after God's own heart, this great king, warrior, poet, all those things, gets her pregnant. And the real problem with this is that her husband is faithfully serving him as a soldier in his army at this time. So David freaks out and he thinks, how am I going to cover this up? So he sends for her husband to come back, have a party, stay at home for a while. But he doesn't. He sleeps there on the steps of, of the palace. He won't go home to his family because he says, how can I go and enjoy the comfort of home when my brothers are off dying in the field? What a great guy. How loyal of a man is that? So David tries one more time to get him drunk and have a party and send him home, but he just won't do it. So David writes a note in his own hand to say, I want you to send Uriah to the front of the battle where the fighting's the fiercest, and when he gets up there to the front, I want you to pull everybody else back so he's left by himself and he dies. He hands this note to Uriah, and Uriah carries his death sentence to the commander of the army of Israel, gives it to him, and the commander follows out the plan. And Uriah, who did nothing but be faithful and loyal, was murdered by David. That's a part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, I know as I'm talking about all this stuff, it sounds like I'm talking about, I'm, I'm giving you a recap from a Jerry Springer episode. <laughs> this is daytime TV at its finest. This is a messed up family. You think, why on earth would Matthew start out by talking about all of this kind of stuff? If he's making the case that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the one that's come to save the whole world, that he's the king of all, then why on earth would he start out by airing all the dirty laundry and all the dirt? If anything, it seems like this would disqualify Jesus or be an argument against his Messiahship. How could God come and take on such a filthy family identity? It'd be like if I was trying to convince you that I had the best hairstylist in the world. And my proof of it was that he was the hairstylist of Donald Trump. You guys would be like, no, he's probably the worst hairstylist in the world. That's what's going on here. Instead of making a case for Jesus based on this great lineage, this pure, holy line that he comes from, he's saying Jesus came from this messed up family. That he didn't come from this royal line. He came from filth. And the reason that Matthew does this, the reason that Matthew spends so much time in, in putting all these stories into the, the, the ears of the readers as they're going through this, is because he wants you to know that by Jesus entering into a messed up, sinful, disgusting family line and taking on their identity, that Jesus identified with you. For every person that read that, they could go through and they could see themselves in that storyline. They could see how they'd received an identity from their family that came from some really messed up stuff just like that. They could see how their own decisions that they had made, that had made them filthy, that had made them sinful and contaminated, they could see that Jesus, that God came and he entered into a family like that and he took on that kind of an identity because Jesus identifies with you. That's why he picked this family. So here's the thing. What that means is we have this idea of God so many times as being he's unapproachable because he's so holy and he's so pure, which he absolutely is. He's holy, he's pure, he's spotless, he's sinless. But he knows what it's like to come into that kind of an identity where people despise you where there's shameful things that you're trying to hide because you don't want anybody else to know that this is a part of your family. You don't want anybody else to know the sins of your own past. You're trying to keep those all hidden. 
and we, and we think, God, how could you even understand what it is that I'm going through? How could you know the way that I feel? How could you know the shame or the guilt that I have on me because of what's been done or because of what I've done? And it's because Jesus came into a situation just like you were in. From being the pure, the one who existed forever in heaven and coming down to a peasant born into abject poverty, born into a a race of people that was enslaved at the time, born into a family line that nobody would want to be a part of, that nobody would take pride in. So that's what this means, is that if you've been abused in your past, maybe you say, I'm like a Tamar, or maybe I'm like a Bathsheba, I've been abused, and that's become a part of my identity. Jesus knows what that's like. Maybe you've been the abuser. Maybe you've done things to people that are terrible, things that you never should have done. Maybe you're like the David, or maybe you're like the wicked husband. You think, how could God ever understand that? He does because he identified with that. He came into that family. Or maybe you're a foreigner. Three of these four people I talked about weren't Jewish. They were foreigners. They were people that were rejected by the nation of Israel, the nation that they lived in. They were a despised people. And maybe you've been living your entire life feeling like a foreigner, that you're outcast. Maybe you've burned every bridge that there is and you feel like you can't go back. Maybe you don't even feel like you have a family that you belong to. Jesus knows what that's like too. Because Jesus came as a foreigner. Jesus wasn't a part of the elite ruling class. He was of the lowest of the lows. That was his identity. And he himself was abused. When he went to the cross, he was tortured, he was beaten, he was abused. He knows what it's like more than any of us. He knows what it's like to be an abuser because even though he never abused anybody, he took on the weight of the sin of every person for everything that they've ever done. So he knows what it's like to have that guilt and that shame on himself because he took your sins on himself on the cross. He knows what it's like to be the foreigner because even his own family, his own friends and disciples, they rejected him and they abandoned him at the cross. In every way possible, Jesus has identified with you. And here's the good thing, is that Jesus doesn't despise sinners. He loves them. He dines with them. He heals them. He touches them. He accepts them. He gives them the hope. He gives them forgiveness. He gives them new life. Jesus doesn't hate sinners. He's not scared of them. He doesn't try to avoid them. Jesus came to you, wherever it is that you are. And he knows exactly how you feel. He knows exactly where you're at. And here's the good thing about the cross, is that Jesus didn't just identify with you, but he took your identity to the cross. Second Peter chapter 2 says this, He personally carried our sins away in his own body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. You have been healed by his wounds. And this is an amazing thing. He who knew no sin says became sin. Not just that he took on sin, he became sin. For every sin that's ever been committed, for every horrible, horrible thing that's ever been done, for genocide, for murder, for hatred, for guilt, for lust, for all of these things, he took that all upon himself. 
and identified with you, and then he took that identity that you've been handed by others. He took that identity that you've made for yourself as an abuser or an abused or as a victim or a victimizer. Whatever that identity is that has been defining your life, it says that Jesus took all of that on himself, took it all off of you, and he took it to the cross. And on the cross, he paid the price for every sin. He took that identity from you, and he nailed it to the cross. That isn't your identity anymore. That's not who you are because that was taken from you. See, here's what we do. We try to take all these things that Jesus died for, Jesus shed his blood to remove from us, and we try to hold on to them. And we continue to live that way. We continue to live as slaves. We continue to live in bondage. But it says this, what Jesus came to do is it says that he came to break chains over you. He came to speak liberty to the captives. He came to open the prison doors. Jesus didn't just come to forgive your sins. He came to take that entire identity away from you, to put it on the cross, so that, number three, he could give you a new identity. And this is really key for us. This is the place where so many people get stuck, is that there is a new identity that Jesus has made for you. And that new identity that you have is you're a son, you're a daughter, you're free, you're alive, you're pure, you're holy, you're righteous. See, Jesus came and he identified with us. He came into our family so that he could remove that identity from us and then identify us to his family. Jesus came to our family so he could save us from our family and bring us into his family. That's the good news of Christmas. That's what we celebrate. That's what we get excited about. It says this in Ephesians 2. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. You have a new identity. You aren't who you used to be. You aren't the abused. You aren't the abuser. You aren't the one who has to carry around guilt and shame over who you are. It's who you were now. That's been removed from you. And it says that what Jesus has done, and this is symbolic, is that he seated you with him in the heavenlies. That's you've been identified with him. Where does Jesus sit? At the right hand of the Father. Victorious over all things. The God who nothing is impossible for. The one who's defeated the power of sin. The one who's defeated the power of death. The one who's exalted and glorified over all creation. And it says that he's brought you up with him to sit next to him. It says that we are a joint heir with Jesus now. And just as he is righteous and he's pure and he's holy because that's what his family is, that's his family identity, you've been brought into that family now. And now there's a whole new set of experiences that you're going to go through in your life after you make the decision to follow Jesus, to be adopted into his family, that's going to give you a new identity. And it's going to shape you, it's going to mold you, you will look at life differently, you will view yourself differently, you will have purpose dropped and deposited into your heart, you will be filled with joy, you will be filled with hope, you will be filled with contentment and peace and everything else that God is, now you will become because you have a new identity because you're a part of a new family. Would you guys stand with me this morning? And this is how that happens. 
If you want a release or an escape from the old life, the old identity that you've been carrying around with you your whole life, if you want to be identified with Jesus and be a part of his family and have that identity on you, this is how it happens. It says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not by your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that none may boast. Your new identity, your salvation comes through faith. It has nothing to do with what you've done, what's been done to you. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done for you. Would you guys pray with me this morning? Let's just take a moment. God, would you speak to our hearts? And God, would you show us the identity that we've been living under? Some of you have been living a life far from God. You've been abused or you've been an abuser. You struggled with immorality or addiction, anger, pride, self-righteousness, guilt, all sorts of things that you've been struggling with, that have identified you, that have made you a slave. You need to know this morning that Jesus identified with you so that you could identify with him. And he's removed that old identity. He's removed all of your sin, all of your guilt, all of your shame. That's all available to you. The forgiveness of your sins. And there's nothing you have to do to earn it. You just receive it by faith. And some of you, you've received forgiveness of your sins. You've made Jesus the Lord of your life. But you continue to live with guilt and shame. You continue to live with the guilt of the old identity. You haven't believed that God has adopted you into his own family. You haven't truly and fully believed that you are seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. That your identity is someone who's pure, who's righteous, who's a child of the living God. That that is your new family. And this morning, Jesus wants to remove that old identity from you and give you the new one that he bought on the cross with his own blood. And this morning, if God's been speaking to you, whether it's you want to make that decision to follow Jesus or you want him to remove that old identity and speak something new to you this morning, every eyes closed, would you raise your hand with me just as a way of saying, Jesus, that's me. Would you do something new inside of my heart? I want the identity that you came to bring me, Jesus. Thank you so much. If that's you, let's pray this together. Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for paying the price for my sin on the cross. I believe that you died and rose again. And now I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to make me your son or your daughter. Father, I want you to make me a part of your family. Would you reveal to me that new identity? Would you remove all my guilt and my shame? And would you fill me with your righteousness, with your peace, with your joy? Fill me with your life this morning. 
and send the gift of the Holy Spirit to me to lead me and to guide me so that I can hear your voice and walk out this new life you've given me. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.